Good morning and Merry Christmas, church family. It's great to be with you guys. 20 days, 20 days until Santa comes. I hope you guys are, you know, getting that Christmas list figured out and uh, getting the gifts all wrapped and ready to go. It's so good to be in this season, one of my favorite times of the year. And if you are new with us, if it's your first time, uh, welcome again. My name is Pete. I serve as the lead pastor and genuinely excited and grateful uh, to have you all with us. We've got a full house here today. It's so good to see so many people gathered in God's house and to my church family tuning in online. I love you guys praying for you. Hope you're doing well this Christmas season. As you just heard Rich say, we are kicking off a brand new series that will last three weeks, head right into our Christmas experiences on the 18th and 19th. Uh, we're calling it unexpected. And why do we call it that? Well, when it comes to this season, I think generally speaking, most people know what to expect around Christmas time. Now, there are always things that don't go according to plan, things that happen unexpectedly, but for the most part, we all know that you know there's gonna be shopping and wrapping and gift giving and gift buying and cookie baking and decorating and you know putting up trees and decorating those trees. And one of the things, ironically enough, as an aside, if you saw my wife's Facebook post a couple days ago, what I did not expect this, this year was to have our Christmas tree fall over, not once, but twice in 24 hours. It was kind of a progression as we saw the tree after we put it up. We, you know, every day, the day, or every year, the day after Thanksgiving, we cut it down and we bring it home and we've got a base for it. And, you know, over a couple of days, it started to lean forward a little bit. And I'm like, I got to take care of that. Well, in typical procrastinating Peter fashion, I didn't take care of it quickly enough. And we woke up one morning to the tree on the ground like that. So we, you know, fixed it. We centered it in the base, you know, got it all situated. And Sammy was like, dad, we should probably add a bungee cord or some kind of a, a string just in case. I'm like, no, it's fine. It's perfectly straight now. It's not leaning. It's not going to fall over. The very next night, it fell over again. So that was a little unexpected for us. First time that's ever happened in 15 years of marriage where our tree fell over twice uh, in 24 hours. But we mostly know what to expect, right? And I find that even when it comes to um, the Christmas story that we read or hear or listen to every year, this time of the year, you know, Luke chapter two, most of us know what to expect. I think some of us, in fact, are so familiar with it. We've heard it thousands of times over the course of our lives that I'm convinced many of you here today could actually recite Luke chapter two verbatim from memory. That's how familiar we are with the story. We know what to expect. But if you were to kind of strip away and try to imagine hearing the story for the first time again, you'd come to realize that the Christmas story is really a rather unexpected story, right? A scandalous pregnancy to a virgin. How does that happen? Angelic messengers. Why does God allow Joseph and Mary to travel so far only to be denied a room at the inn. Doesn't God have connections? Did he fail to use Expedia.com and book a room? What's the deal with that? Like, why was he born to peasant parents? Why such humble beginnings? Why a smelly stable in a manger surrounded by farm animals? Like, if Jesus is the son of God, born a king, wouldn't it be more appropriate for him to be born in a palace to a royal family? 
Why do the angels announce his birth to dirty, lowly shepherds instead of to people of prominence where they can you know, bring notoriety to it and help spread the word? And what's the deal with these weird wise men from the East? Like a lot of unexpected elements. And so if you think about it, the Christmas story is an unexpected story of a divine baby who's fully God and fully man somehow at the same time, born to unexpected people at an unexpected time in an unexpected place with unexpected circumstances. And that's what we're gonna talk about over the course of this series, rediscover some of the unexpected elements that we maybe haven't thought about. Because here's what I know, if we were writing the Christmas story, I can almost guarantee you we wouldn't write it the same way God wrote it, would we? And this is an important point for us to recognize because if we're honest, I think there are times in our lives where we look at what's happening in our lives and we say, God, why are you writing my story this way, right? The Christmas story is a great reminder to us that God writes better stories than you or I ever could. If we could somehow wipe our memory banks clear of the hundreds or thousands of times we've heard it and imagine how we would write it if we were tasked with how, the, how God would send his son to be the savior of the world, like our, our story would sound and look a lot different than the one we know and are familiar with in the Bible. Like our story would include like heroes and victory and you know wealth and great contacts and connections and things that were working out well. It wouldn't depict the tough circumstances that were really present there. And the reason I know we would try to write it that way is because that's how we try to write our stories, right? We, we want the story of our lives to include great connections, great contacts, great circumstances, and things all working out well for us. We wouldn't write the story the same way that God wrote it. And that's because many of us aren't happy with the way God is writing our story. Our stories include some unexpected plot twists, circumstances that create confusion for us. And we wonder, say, God, this, this isn't supposed to be part of the script, right? I was supposed to be married by 30. I was supposed to have a job by now. I'm supposed to be in college by now. I'm supposed to be a parent by now. I'm not supposed to be divorced. Our stories have a lot of these unexpected twists. And maybe that's exactly the reason why God wrote the Christmas story the way he did. Because he knew. He knew that your life and mine would feature their own set of unexpected plot twists. He knew our stories would involve their own crazy cast of characters that we call mom and dad, or our spouse, or our ex, or my former business partner, right? He knew. Maybe that's why he wrote the story the way he did. Now, when it comes to the story of God, the Bible, you know, the Bible is not a book. It's better to really look and think of the Bible as a collection of 66 ancient manuscripts composed by 40 different authors over the period of, you know, 1,500 years or so. And even though each of the 66 books has its own story within it, across all 66 books, there is a arc, there is a storyline that tells the story of broken, sinful humanity and God's pursuit of them and his desire to save people from their sin. 
And when it comes to the story of Jesus specifically, we have four ancient manuscripts that we call the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of which tell the story of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. But they do so from different vantage points, right? There is some commonality and some overlap between each of the four Gospels, but some of them tell different stories that aren't included in some of the other Gospels. For example, uh, Mark and John start their Gospels with the ministry of John the Baptist, 30 years after Jesus was born, and they don't mention anything of Jesus's birth. The Gospel of Luke begins with um, the angel's announcement to Mary's cousin Elizabeth, who would give birth to John the Baptist, who would be Jesus's cousin. And then, the, and then the angel goes and tells teenage Mary, surprise, you found favor with God. You're gonna give birth to the son of God. But Matthew's gospel is a little bit different in that he doesn't begin with a story at all. He actually begins with a genealogy, a rather unexpected way to introduce the story of Jesus. And so I wanna to read to you how the story or how Matthew's gospel begins. He eventually gets to the Christmas story but this is how he starts, Matthew chapter one, verse one. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Some translations say Jesus the Christ. And Messiah and Christ are interchangeable Hebrew and Greek terms that both mean the chosen one or the anointed one. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of of Judah and his brothers, and on and on he goes, starting with Abraham, working all the way down through the generations until Jesus arrives on the scene. Kind of an unusual, unexpected way to start the story of Jesus. Now, why would he do that? Well, there are several reasons, the first and most important of which is to understand that Matthew was writing primarily to a Jewish audience. And the first question a Jewish audience is gonna ask before they will read the rest of the story is, is this supposed Messiah related to David? Because if he's not related to David, then we can't really take him seriously because every Jew knew that this long promised prophesied Messiah would be a king that would descend from the great King David. And so Matthew, knowing he's communicating to a Jewish audience and being a Jew himself, has said, well, let's answer that question right up front. Who is Jesus related to? And he connects Jesus to David. But interestingly, in establishing Jesus's credibility as being from the line and lineage of David, Matthew also kind of reveals some things about Jesus's ancestry that probably should have remained a secret things that don't really help his case. And oddly enough, he seems to do so somewhat intentionally. Now, here's why this is fascinating. You see, in ancient times, especially before the first and second century, histories were written by people who hired people to write history. It was people who were like military leaders or kings or emperors that would hire someone to write the history of their line of people and they would do so like the writers would be kind of, they would kind of be forced to paint the picture in a way that highlighted all of the good parts of that person's line and lineage. So consequently, there would be gaps in the story as historians being paid by powerful people, you better make my family and my line look good. 
So they would like highlight the military victories and kind of gloss over or ignore altogether any military defeats, any ancestors or children in the line that you know, had accomplished great military feats, victories would, big deal would be made of them while any children that didn't really amount to much were either ignored altogether or very little was made of them. See, because the writers were writing for a point, they were writing to someone for someone to make that someone's family and lineage look as good as they possibly could. But when you get to the ancient document known as Matthew's gospel, the opposite is actually true. And it's the opposite almost to be offensive. See, Matthew unnecessarily but intentionally highlights people that other historians would have been most prone to skip over. He seems to go out of his way to make us question some of the people that are connected to Jesus in his lineage. In fact, he even adds to and emphasizes certain people that shouldn't have even been mentioned in the genealogy at all. For example, in this culture, we have to understand that this was a male-dominated society, and this would have and should have been a male-dominated list composed of all men, because Matthew, again, is trying to connect Jesus the man to David the man through the lineage of men. But Matthew actually introduces four women in the genealogy of Jesus, two of which should never have been mentioned at all, three of whom are not even Jew. So it's almost like Matthew is saying, by the way, this long foretold prophesied Messiah doesn't even have 100% Jewish blood, which kind of, there's a mix. It kind of, you know, doesn't work well for him. So listen to how this goes as he continues this genealogy in verse three. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. First woman mentioned in Jesus's genealogy, Tamar. Now, if you grew up in church and you know your Old Testament history, you may know who Tamar is, but I'm willing to bet that the majority of people here today don't know the story of Judah and Tamar. And let me just put it this way. If, if I were to read the account of Judah and Tamar from Genesis, there'd be parts of the story, there'd be certain verses that I'd be embarrassed to read out loud in mixed company, especially in church. Like it is a seedy, like dicey story, rated R, NC-17 maybe even. And so Matthew communi communicating to a Jewish audience, again, remember that genealogies were always for the point of trying to like show the good parts of a person's lineage. They're like, hey, we, we know who Tamar is. Why are you mentioning Tamar? That's not, that's not really painting a good picture for Jesus's ancestry. But he mentions Tamar, and he continues on in the next verse. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, woman number two in Jesus's genealogy, who is also not a Jew. And if you grew up in church, you may know who Rahab is, but if you didn't grow up in church, Rahab was the Canaanite prostitute who helped hide the Israelite spies before the Israelites would invade the city of Jericho and the walls would come tumbling down. You remember that story? Rahab was a pagan prostitute. And so again, a Jewish audience would be like, why are you mentioning Rahab? Like that's, that's we know who she is. Like you're not making a strong case here, Matthew. Matthew. 
And yet he continues. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Here's the third woman mentioned in Jesus's genealogy. Now, Ruth is actually a good story. There's actually a whole book of the Bible after Ruth. But any Jewish, Jewish reader would know that Ruth wasn't Jewish either. She was from Moab. So it's almost like Matthew's going out of his way to say, hey, if you're trying to connect Jesus to David and you're introducing all these non-Jewish women, like why all the distractions? Why all this sideways energy? Why are you taking the time to bring these women into the, into the narrative? He continues, Obed, the father of Jesse. And finally, he says, and Jesse, the father of King David. So there it is. He has connected Jesus to David. Now can we just go on with the good parts of the story, just stick with you know, the men in the lineage. But and in the very next verse, check this out. David was the father of Solomon. And look how he writes this whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, let me ask you Bible scholars out there. Who was Solomon's mother? Bathsheba. You don't even have to really be a church person to know the story of David and Bathsheba, right? David committed adultery with one of his best friend's wives, one of his general's wives, got her pregnant, and in order to, in an attempt to cover up what he had done, he sends Uriah out to the battlefield and gives instructions to the commanding officer to say, hey, when the fighting gets the most intense, pull the rest of the army back, leaving Uriah and his men out front, and Uriah gets struck down and killed. So he commits premeditated murder in an attempt to cover up his sin. Now, a Jewish audience would be like, why are you bringing this up? Like, notice he doesn't even say, you know, Solomon's mother, who was Bathsheba. He makes it worse by saying Solomon's mother, who was another man's wife. He is highlighting David's greatest moral failure. And the Jews who think of King David as the greatest king in Israel's history are thinking, why are you introducing his greatest moral failure, the part of his life that I'm sure David himself would wish to erase? Interesting. Matthew is writing out this genealogy and he hasn't even started the story yet. He hasn't even gotten to Jesus and he's going out of his way to create all this intrigue and drama around the people connected to Jesus and related to him. What is up with that? Why not just stick with the men's names? And the thing is, not only does he introduce these four women, three of whom are not Jewish, two of whom have scandal attached to them, but there are other women in Jesus' lineage, solid Jewish women of faith that he chooses not to mention at all. Doesn't mention Sarah. Rebecca's a great story. Doesn't mention her. Leah. Why is that? See, Matthew knew. I'm going to tell you why I think he did it. Matthew spent three years with Jesus, heard him teach, watched him die on a cross, stood next to an empty tomb. And Matthew knew that all these shady characters with all their baggage and their sin and their embarrassing stories were the point of the story that he was about to tell. See, Matthew knew that sin was the issue that Jesus came to address. And Matthew wanted his audience and the world to know that Jesus came from sinners for sinners. Matthew knew firsthand from personal experience 
that the Christmas story is about light penetrating the darkness, about life invading the dominion of death, about grace breaking down the barriers and boundaries that the law had created. It's a story of forgiveness coming into a world that had only known condemnation. Matthew knew that, and that's why he introduced those. And the other thing that Matthew knew, and maybe this is what motivated him to add all of these seedy characters in the genealogy of Jesus. See, for Matthew, this was his story. See, for Matthew, people like Rahab and Tamar and Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, those were his kind of people. Those would have been the people that would maybe have been his friends that would have been present on the day that he would probably refer to as the most embarrassing day of his life, the day he met Jesus for the first time. See, later in his gospel, he actually tells that story. It happened in Capernaum, which was a port city on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus had just crossed the lake, gotten off. And as often happened with Jesus, you know, people come up to him and they want him to do something for them. And these people lay a paralyzed man on a mat down in front of Jesus. They look at Jesus. They look at their friend. They look at Jesus. Can you help our friend? And by this time, a crowd had gathered and Jesus looks at the paralyzed man and says something rather unexpected. He says, take heart, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. To which his friends would have been like, that's not why we brought him to you. You can clearly see that's not what he needs from you right now. But the religious leaders were also present there. See, they followed Jesus everywhere he went. They were trying to figure out who he was. Like he said some great things, did some weird things, was performing miracles. Like, who is this guy? We've got to figure him out. But when they hear him say, your sins are forgiven, all of a sudden they're like, hold on, slam the brakes. Only God can forgive sins. And so in verse three, the teachers of the law said to themselves, he's equating himself with God. This fellow is blaspheming. That's blasphemy. You can't do that. Well, Jesus responds to them in verse five. He says, which is easier to say, you guys? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? But I want you to know, he says, that the son of man, which is what he referred to himself as, I want you to know that I have the authority on earth to forgive sins. So he turned and said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. Then the man got up and went home. Jesus healed him. He did a miracle. And when the crowd saw this, they were all filled with awe. They praised God who had given such authority to man. Now, we don't know if Matthew actually witnessed this firsthand. We don't know if he was present, if he saw it, if he experienced it. But what we do know is that Matthew wanted his audience to know that the moment he laid eyes on Jesus for the first time in his life was moments after Jesus had told this paralyzed man, that your sins are forgiven. Because in the very next verse, it says in verse nine, and as Jesus walked on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. So Matthew is writing his own story. And he's telling of the time, the first time he laid eyeballs on Jesus, the savior of the world. Now this, this had to be probably the most embarrassing moment of Matthew's entire life. 
How many of you have ever like gone to a party and they play like weird icebreaker games to kind of help break the ice and get people to know each other? And one of the games that sometimes you get asked to play is to tell people the most embarrassing moment of your life. I'm convinced that if Matthew ever went to a party where they played that game, this would have been the moment that he described. He's like, let me tell you guys, the first time I met Jesus, you're never gonna believe this. Like there was this, there was this crowd gathered and he had just gotten off the boat and you know, he had told this guy his sins were forgiven and he healed him, he got up and walked and it was crazy. You know? And then the crowd parts and there's Jesus, lays eyes on me and you know what I was doing when he saw me for the first time? I was sitting in a tax collector's booth collecting taxes and his friends would have been like, oh no, you weren't. See, and here's why we have to understand that this would have been so embarrassing for him because in this culture, see Rome had afforded the opportunity to, initially it was to Roman citizens, that Roman citizens could buy the opportunity or the privileges they saw it for five years to collect taxes for Rome and be assigned to different regions. So a Roman citizen, especially a entrepreneurially minded one that wanted to earn some money, could be assigned to Judea or Palestine or somewhere to collect taxes for Rome and be given the ability in doing so to set surcharges on those taxes. And they got to keep the overage and Rome was fine and happy as long as they got what was owed them. And so tax collectors became incredibly wealthy. The problem though, was that if you're a Roman citizen and you're being assigned to some outpost like Judea, how popular are you with the Jewish citizens? You ain't popular at all. Like your house is getting egged, your donkey's getting stolen. Like they create all sorts of havoc for you. They had no friends because everybody hated tax collectors. So Rome kind of got wise and they started delegating the collection of taxes to the citizens of each region. Rome, who was the controlling power in the world at that time, like they would hire people from each region to collect taxes from the people in that region. And so there were quite a few Jews who were willing to do this because they saw how much money you could make, but to the rest of their countrymen, they were seen as a traitor to their country, a traitor to God, and they were social outcasts. Like they were, when you think about the class of people in Jesus's time, there were the religious elite, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, common folk. And then there was like this phrase you see over and over again in scripture, sinners and tax collectors, tax collectors and sinners, right? Like everyone was kind of lumped into the category of sinners. But then you had tax collectors was like the bottom of the barrel. They were the lowest on the totem pole. Religiously shunned, never allowed in the synagogue, embarrassing to their families, ceremonially unclean. My iPad just died. So if somebody from the production room can bring me a hard copy of my message, that would be fantastic. Wow. That's a first. Unexpected, absolutely unexpected. Wow. Seven years of preaching and I've never had my iPad die on me. Where was I? Oh yes, tax. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it, Monica. <laughs> so there he sits at the tax collector's booth, 
when Jesus walks up. The picture of righteousness, holiness personified, God in a bod, when he makes eye contact with Matthew, who is collecting taxes and stealing from his own people. There is no telling what, through, what went through Matthew's mind in that moment, what washed over him. As Jesus, the savior of the world, saw him in that moment with his disciples kind of following him. And I can only imagine as they're coming up to the tax collector's booth, what maybe Peter, James, and John were saying, oh, here comes a tax collector. What should we say to him? Should we spit on him? Should we sneer at him? Because remember, Jesus' disciples hated, all Jews hated tax collectors. But before any of them could say anything to Matthew, Jesus speaks up in verse nine and says, hey, Matthew, follow me, follow me. Can you imagine the disciples' reaction in that moment? Peter had to lose his mind. Like, Jesus, are you crazy? What are you doing? Like, to me, this had to be the worst moment in Peter's life, maybe next to the crucifixion. Like, for real, like, you want him, a tax collector, to, follow, to be one of the crew? Are you sure, Jesus? I can't, that's one of the reasons I love the show, The Chosen. If you've not seen that yet, you need to download The Chosen app. There are two seasons, eight episodes in each season. You can cast them to your TV. To me, it's by far my favorite depiction of Jesus I've ever seen on a screen. But what I love about it is that it introduces a dynamic that very likely could have been at play in the interpersonal relationships amongst the chosen, the disciples. That's what the show is about. Because you gotta understand, like the entire time that they were together, it's quite likely that 11 of the 12 disciples all hated Matthew, who represented everything bad. He was a traitor to their people. Jesus, why would you pick Matthew? I wonder if Matthew maybe smiles to himself or laughs as he writes the account of the moment when Jesus invited him to follow and thinking about Peter and the other guy's reaction in that moment, as he looks at Matthew and says, hey, follow me. And it says, Matthew got up and followed him. He says, gee, you want me? I've never been allowed in synagogue or temple. Like, yeah, I'll follow you. Where are we going, Jesus? Where are we going? Maybe you know the story. Peter looks at him and says, hey, why don't we go to your house? At which point, Peter probably blew his lid off. Are you crazy, Jesus? Like, I ain't setting foot in that man's house. Like, it's bad enough that we're even talking to him. But you want us to go to his house? Can we just take a step back here, Jesus? Think about this for a minute. Like, I don't know what kind of momentum or movement you're trying to create, but if people already think we're freaks, they think we're crazy, but we start hanging out with tax collectors, forget about it. This ain't helping our cause here, Jesus. But Jesus, Matthew, come on. Okay, where are we going? Your house. In fact, why don't you bring all your friends with you? And Peter's like, Jesus, Peter, stop. 
Don't make me come back there. Let's go to your house, Matthew. And so as the story goes, Matthew and his friends have a meal and have a party with Jesus and his disciples. And who are Matthew's friends? Well, the only people that would hang out with a tax collector would be other tax collectors and sinners. So it's gotta be quite the scene. Matthew being a tax collector was probably pretty wealthy and I'm sure he threw a great party. And again, the religious leaders were part of the crowd that kind of followed Jesus everywhere he went. They're trying to figure him out. Like he seems to want to uphold the law and yet he does these weird things and not so sure. And so they, they see this scene of Jesus and his disciples hanging out with the outcasts of society. And so they probably motion to one of the disciples to come out because they would never dare set foot in Matthew's house. Like they would be ceremonially unclean because tax collectors and sinners, let's be honest, have like spiritual cooties that just hang out in the air and we don't dare get close enough to them to catch those cooties. Like take months to get ceremonially clean. So they wave one of the disciples over. It tells us in verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Like, we don't understand. Help us understand why he's hanging out with people like that. He says some great, he's done some miracles, but like he's in there getting tax collector cooties. This doesn't compute with us. Jesus must have heard them say that because in the next verse, it tells us, I'm, I'm hearing this. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. At which point, Matthew and his tax collector buddies could have been pretty offended, but they weren't. Because do you know what people who are far from God know? They know they're far from God. You knew that, didn't you? You know that right now maybe, don't you? And sure, you could get offended if I were to say, you're a sinner, you're far from God, and you can tell me where to shove my religion and all that stuff. But at the end of the conversation, when it's all said and done, you know. And Matthew knew. And that's why he wasn't offended. Matthew knew. He says, well, I've never thought of myself as sick. This is a figure of speech, and if it comes to being a righteous person, yeah, maybe I'm sick. And Jesus says to the religious leaders in verse 13, I want you guys to go and learn what this means. And then he quotes from the Old Testament book of Hosea. Speaking of God, he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So once again, he's speaking on behalf of, of God, equating himself with God. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then he says, speaking for himself, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, I've not come to call the people who think that they've already figured it out and feel like they can approach God on the basis of their own, you know, adherence to the law and good works and all that stuff. I've come to call the sinners, the people who know they're not good enough. That's who I've come to call. See, it wasn't offensive to Matthew because he knew deep down that he was a sinner. The real shocker for Matthew would have been that being a sinner didn't exclude him from being invited by Jesus to come and follow. And you see, as Matthew thought through his own story, 
the story he was about to write in the gospel, the story of Jesus. He knew that he needed to include sinners in the genealogy. It wasn't an aberration, it wasn't an exception, it was the point because the people in the genealogy represented the reason Jesus came in the first place. And Matthew understood maybe better than any of the other gospel writers that the story of Jesus and the story, the unexpected story specifically of Christmas is a story of God drawing near to those who had drawn away. That God had drawn near to those who had been drawn away that God was leaning in to those who were leaning away from him, that he was leaning in towards those who, for reasons beyond their control, for family issues and lack of knowledge or whatever it might be, were leaning away from God. The unexpected story of Christmas is a story of God drawing near to those who had drawn away. So Matthew understood that he needed to highlight the problems in the genealogy because those people reflected the reason Jesus came in the first place. You know, at the end of three years, you know what Matthew discovered? He discovered that when Jesus came, he changed all the rules for what it meant to approach God. Because the reason that Matthew had drawn away from God and the reason that his friends had drawn away from God is because the thinking then is really still the thinking today. And that's that We think we have to approach God on the basis of what I've done. That the only way God will take me seriously is if I have demonstrated my worthiness to him by doing all of the good things and doing my best to avoid the bad things. And that's how I approach God on the basis of what I've done. But Matthew knew that if this was the platform upon which he would be able to approach God, that he had no approach at all because he was a tax collector. He was forever shunned and excluded from religious life and from connection from God forever. But the rules changed because after following Jesus for three years and listening to the things that he taught and watching him interact with the outcasts of society, seeing him die on a cross, standing next to the empty tomb, Matthew now realized that he, a tax collector, a sinner who had failed in every way and had broken every law could now approach God, but no longer on the basis of what he had done or not done. Now he could approach God simply on the basis of what Jesus did for him. That Matthew standing before God, his righteousness was based on the one who invited him to simply follow. And in following, he eventually believed. The rules changed. We have a new way to approach God that isn't based on how good we've been, how consistent we've been. Now we've got a new way. What Jesus did, that's why he came, for sinners like you and like me. So he assembled the genealogy and felt no pressure to avoid the ugly spots and only highlight the heroes of the story because the sinners in the genealogy were the point. They're the ones that Jesus came for. Not those who felt like they had a standing in their own good works and righteousness, but those who knew they needed a standing, a different standing altogether. 
The message from the story that he was about to tell is the story that God has drawn near to those who've drawn away and to those who've been drawn away. Isn't that awesome? And like Matthew, God is still inviting sinners to draw near in spite of what they have done because of what Jesus did. The point of Christmas is not lights and trees and Santa Claus and all that stuff. It's all great. I love the traditions. The point of Christmas is that God sent a savior into the world. That was the announcement the angels gave to the shepherds. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. The story of Christmas is a reminder that the world then and the world still today needs a savior who will save us from our sin. That is the story of Christmas. So the unexpected genealogy of Jesus is the perfect launching point to tell the story of Jesus because it represents why he came. And so here's my goal for all of us. Whether you're a religious person or not, whether you go to church or not, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, my goal for all of us is this. I'm including everyone watching online, those of you in the room, is that if you're someone who has, in your thinking, in your prayer life, in your worldview, you've approached God from the standpoint of, of what you've done, how good you've been or what you've not done, my hope and goal and prayer for you is that you would abandon this completely. Because here's what you need to understand. No matter how good you've been, no matter how faithful you've been, no matter how consistent you've been at attending mass or going to church or doing confession or giving to the poor or doing the things that you think make you good enough and approachable to God, none of it's good enough. Because scripture says our righteousness is as filthy rags. Only Jesus was good enough. I pray that you would abandon this. And for those of you who haven't approached God because you also have this way of thinking, but there's just been too much baggage, there's too much disbelief, there's too much shame, there's too much immorality, and you've always felt distant and alienated from God because you knew that with your story and the things you've done, the things that were done to you, you had no standing to approach God, and so you've always kept him at a distance. My prayer is that you would abandon this way of thinking too. See, I think it's the religious people that have the hardest time walking away from this. Maybe you, like me, have gladly come over to this, this way and, and you accept the free gift of forgiveness and say, thank you, Jesus. But the moment you fail, the moment you sin, you feel the voice of the enemy bringing shame and condemnation and you shrink back and you're so easily pulled back into this way of thinking because I've messed up, I can't approach God. I'm not good enough. You'll never be good enough. That's why Jesus came. And for the religious people who've leaned away from God because you've tried and failed and tried and failed again, and you've never been able to muster 
the consistency to keep doing the things you think you're supposed to do for long enough. And now you've leaned away from God because of it. In spite of the fact that he has leaned towards you, my prayer is that you too would abandon this way of thinking. Because the story of Christmas, the story of Jesus, is the story of the what I've done approach to God being removed from the table once and for all for everyone. Those who think they're righteous and those who know they are not. That's the story of Christmas. That there is a new way to approach God. So my agenda for all of us, my hope, is that we would all come to a point that we could, with a clear conscience, say, God, in my, in my thinking, in my prayer, in my worldview, I'm not gonna approach you anymore on the basis of what I've done or not done. I'm now gonna approach you 100% purely on the basis of what you did for me. That you have the authority and the power from God to declare a sinner forgiven. And I accept that. And when I think about you, I'm not gonna think about you through the grid of my own righteousness or unrighteousness. I'm gonna accept you through the grid of the gift of righteousness that you imputed to me, that you gave to me when I placed my faith and trust in you. Because I believe, Jesus, that when you came into this world, it wasn't to be a good moral teacher. It wasn't to give us a leg up. It wasn't to give us our best life now. I believe that when you came into this world, you came to be exactly what Matthew and Luke presented you as, the savior of the world, the forgiver of my sins and the gift of righteousness. But let me just caution you, I guess, this transition is harder to make than you might realize because we've been indoctrinated and conditioned that this is the way we approach God. You gotta be good enough. You gotta do these things. And the more religious you are, the harder it is to go from here to here. And perhaps that's why it was not the tax collectors and sinners, not even Rome that crucified our savior, but it was the self-righteous people who believed that they had figured out a way to approach God on the basis of their own good works and righteousness. They never understood what Jesus meant when he said, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. I didn't come for the people who think they're righteous in their own good works. I came for the people who know that they are not righteous at all. My prayer for us as we approach Christmas over these next couple weeks is that we would really wrestle this to the ground. That we would abandon this way of thinking and embrace the reality, the truth, that the reason Jesus came was to give us a new way 
to approach God and to understand that this unexpected story is a story of God drawing near to those of us who have drawn away or have been drawn away. That's the story of Christmas, that we would all live out our lives and our faith in such a way that demonstrates this is where we land. Jesus, you did something for me that I couldn't do. You lived the life that I couldn't live and died the death that I deserved to give me access. So now I can run boldly into the throne room of grace to receive help in times of need, not because I've been good enough, but because you alone are good. That's the story of Christmas, that God came near. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you right now that your spirit is present, that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom, that Jesus, you came to set the captives free. And there are so many people here today who are captive to a way of thinking that depends on their own righteousness, that depends on their ability to be good. God, I pray for every person here today who is bound in legalism, that you would set them free, Lord, that you would liberate us from our own sense of righteousness and from a hopeless sense of unrighteousness. You would set us free today, Lord, to recognize and realize that you changed the rules. You gave us a new way. Set us free. Lord, I pray, I don't wanna pass up the opportunity with all heads bowed and eyes closed. If you're someone here today, and I've described you today, you, you've had this mindset. You thought that it was based on your good works. Maybe you were raised in church, you went to religion class, you went to confirmation, you did all the things you were supposed to do and you've never felt good enough. You've never felt like there was enough that you could do to measure up. Maybe you would recognize today that depending on your own good works negates the need for Jesus dying on the cross for you. And if today you wanna turn around and go a different direction, you can make that decision by simply placing your faith and trust in the one who gave his life for you. So if that's you here today, John in his gospel said to all those who believed him, to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. If you wanna become a child of your heavenly father and relate to him as father without fear of judgment, you can do that by simply placing your trust in Jesus. Would you let me know if you wanna do that today by just raising your hands all across this place? Is there anybody here today that says, yes, that's me. I see these hands over here on this row. I'm proud of you guys. See that hand back there? I'm proud of you, the spirit's moving. I see that hand on the left, in the back and in the middle. God bless you. I see that hand on the right. Spirit is moving in this place. Lord, I thank you for the spirit of revelation that is in this room that is helping us to know you better. If you're watching online, you can click the link in the comment section of whatever platform you're watching on right now. And listen, I'm gonna lead you all in a prayer. But it's important to understand that it's not the words of the prayer specifically that transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It's not, that's not important. What's important is the posture of your heart as you submit and surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that you believe that he is who he claimed to be, the son of God, 
who lived a perfect sinless life and died a sinner's death on your behalf to remove the penalty of your sin once and for all. That's what's important. That's what enables you to call God your Father. So I don't want anyone praying alone. To everyone who raised your hand, I want you to repeat these words after me. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to come near to us, to become one of us, to experience pain and suffering. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sins. I confess those sins to you now. I ask you to forgive me and cleanse me. Make me brand new. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the strength and the power to follow you for the rest of my life. My life is not my own. I give it to you. Be my Savior and my Lord. Now thank you for welcoming me into your family. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Come on, church, make some noise. Worship big, worship loud. The family of God has grown. Woo! That's what I'm talking about. Listen, as our Dream Team members get into position quietly to serve you on your way out in just a moment, I wanna take just a quick minute to address those of you that raised your hand to say that you wanna place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Let me be the first one to say congratulations on the most important decision you will ever make in your entire life. You are now a part of the family of God. You're, you're my brother, you're my sister in the Lord, and we welcome you. We're so excited for you. But listen, that was just the first step of many more steps that will last you the rest of your life on this new journey as a follower of Jesus. And we want you to know you're not on this journey alone. As a church family, we wanna come alongside of you and help you take some next steps. And so if you wouldn't mind doing us a favor, and if you prayed that prayer, grab the green I have decided card in the seat back pocket in front of you. Check the box on the back side that indicates the decision you're making today. And on your way out, you can hand that to one of our Dream Team members at the information booth who wanna give you a Bible and some other resources that will explain a little bit more about the decision that you just made, as well as suggest some next steps that you might wanna consider taking on this new journey as a follower of Jesus. And to those of you who said that prayer online, let me just remind you, you can click the link in the comment section of the platform you're watching on, and we will send you that Bible and that next step kit as well. Excited to be on this journey with all of you. Just a quick reminder that if you signed up to serve and volunteer at our Christmas Wonderland outreach, on Tuesday and Wednesday, there is a mandatory quick training right after the service in this room. So be here for that. We appreciate it. We just wanna give you all the information you'll need to know what's gonna happen and what we need you to do on those two days as we love and serve our community with excellence. I love you guys. I'm excited to continue the series next week. Bring somebody with you. God bless. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. Love you, church. I'll be riding shotgun underneath the hot sun, feeling like someone. I'll be riding shotgun underneath the hot sun, feeling like someone. I'll be riding shotgun underneath the hot sun, feeling like someone, someone, someone.